you know, after all that, I, I didn't close the door to my office. Do you need to still do that? Uh, I don't want, you know, who listening in. Hold on a second. Okay. You know, they're like, they're like sponges. They, they, they pick it all up. So th- this is totally Shamistad. Um, Incognito or something. I don't know. Shamistad's not the right word. No. But there's no, there's no IRC channel. There's no live broadcast. No, no. And you're, you're catching my end of this. Mm-hmm. I got it all. Uh, first of all, uh, A, in the drinking game. I just took a drink for Shamistad. Uh, but B, yeah, I think Dan will find out about this when it goes up. But he won't listen to it, which is fine. But you have the ability to do that? Oh, yeah. I got it all. I got, uh, I got two screens. I got it all. I'm grounded. I got a power conditioner. I got a moisture evaporator. It's all good. I, I suppose it's, it, it says something about me, and I've never really given it a lot of thought, that I tend to roll only at the extremes, where, like, at Daring Fireball, I have complete control. And that's why I use MT. There's, you know, other systems I could use that would be more modern. Um, but I've got a system set up there that I can control everything. Uh, like if I wanted to switch that, that whole jobby to just serve people plain text like it's 1992 on a gopher server, I, I could probably do that in about 10 minutes. You also uh, have all your posts are, what is it, like dot, uh, .mark or .md turns any post into markdown? Is that right? You still do that? Yeah, dot text. Is that HTX? But I don't, HD you know, access? I don't have... how, how do you do HD access? Um, how do I do that? You know what? Don't, don't mention it. Don't mention yeah. it. There's See, a little HT access in there, but it's more or less that there's for each post, there's two immovable type emits, two output files, static files. One is an HTML file. One is the dot text file. I don't do it for the link list entries, but I, I really should. I don't know why I, I don't do that. I miss, I miss MT so much. There's... That was my introduction to the command line. That was my introduction to anything. I mean, you got to give Ben props for coming up with that. What would you call it? Like the ability to use those to, you know, inside of the greater than, less than greater than, to be able to like have this meta language for, for what posts should do on the page here. Like that was how I learned so much stuff that I later kind of, did with program for you that was a breeze but i still think that was brilliant I I, I I think the credit that ben should get is to me it was the first system that i have i and i was looking before i launched during fireball for at least a year and sort of staying on top of anything that called itself a weblog system or a cms or anything like that um it was really really good at not being constrained to the author of the system's idea of what a blog or a CMS should be, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if you looked at, I mean, I wasn't going to use it, but if you looked at, uh, there were a lot of sites at the time because I think Slashdot had just open sourced their CMS. Plone. Um, Is that called Plone? I forget what it was, but it, it was a beast. <laughs> it was a beast, but it did some amazing things, and it had some. It, very interesting performance characteristics at the time where it could handle insane amounts of you know users and comments uh, and had a very powerful uh, I forget what they call it moderation system where you can up upvote and downvote and all this crazy stuff but the the gist of it though is if you used it, you were going to end up with a site that looked like slash dot I mean maybe not in terms of the color but it was in terms of the structure it was slash dot 
And there were other systems before MT, but you could use them to make a site that was like the one that it came with out of the box. Whereas movable type was uh, like Lego. Like, yeah, there was like the, you know, they came with instructions for how to get a default blog that looked like an MT 1.0 blog. But you could just take all the pieces apart and put them together any way you want. And I think that's really, really hard to do. And in hindsight, it looks like it, it, it's easy to overlook. Yeah, it's, it, it totally is. I mean, I, when I got started with that junk, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it was PHP Nuke. Uh, I, I tried, what was, was Plone in Perl? What was, what was, it was in something that was hard for me to run. It wasn't PHP. Yeah, I remember PHP Nuke. But, you know, the, the, here's the dis- one distinction that can get lost in all of that. Well, also, you got to give props to Mina, because, again, it, once you had that thing installed, which was the hard part, I paid Ben to install mine. And once it was installed, you had a pretty blog that worked. You never had to touch anything. But there still was still all that stuff under the hood. And some people to this day, like you, or like Howie did for a long time, um, really really put that to great use. Because And here's the distinction. This is nothing against open source software, because we wouldn't be anywhere without open source software. But um, <laughs> I think this is a Montero quote. I'm positive it's a Montero quote. Uh, Basecamp. I'll massacre it a little bit. Basecamp works flawlessly as long as you think exactly like Jason Fried. And, and I think that with open source software, yeah. if you think the way the developers think, and let's be honest, most people in some form or fashion do, you're good to go. And so when you put up Plone, you are implicitly making a clone of Slashdot. You know, uh, Drupal, which I love. I mean, Drupal has come such a long way, but I mean, it, it's, you know, it's still a Drupal site because that's what people want it to be. But what Movable Type did, if you were savvy with it, was I had, on the original Kung Fu Grip, I did so much stuff that was cool and hacky. So, for example, I did something that I think maybe Kotke did the first time I saw it, which was at the top of the page, there's whatever, I don't know the language, I haven't used it in, you know, five or eight years, but it was like, you know, recent entries, one. And so you get your one most recent post at the top of the page, looked really cool and clean, and then you say click for more. And then underneath mm. that was, in lieu of delicious, I think at that time <clears> I was using MT for, you know, remaindered links too, as he called them, and last five remaindered links as LIs. And that looked so awesome compared to every blog out there. Because most blogs out there, you know what a blog looked like then. You had, okay. a, you had a right rail with uh, archives, you had a center thing with reverse dated. But that, that was not that super hard to do. And it still had the abstraction layer that now everybody has today, right? I, I just, uh, to me, I, yeah, it's, and to me it's exactly like Lego. And I feel like in hindsight you look back and think, well, they're just, especially if you look not at these modern Lego, which have a bunch of cheaty pieces that are shaped exactly like uh, the roof of Hogwarts Academy. It's like, oh, no wonder it looks like Hogwarts. You know, it's a single piece that looks like the roof. But if you go back to like the early 70s and the original Lego when they were like just, everything was just a rectangular piece. Uh, it's easy, I think, in hindsight to say, well, duh, it's just blocks with little nubbins that snap on the top into the bottom of the next piece. I mean, it, duh, that's, but it's, it's not that simple, right? Because nobody had that, nobody came up with that before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, here's another cool thing I learned from Matt Howie, uh, cause I had done, you know, believe it or not, I used to do web stuff like kind of for a living. I know that seems inscrutable now, but back then I would when I when people needed a blog, there was no question. Eventually this became Drupal that I would install for people, but back then it would always be MT. Because if people wanted a simple blog thing and could and had could get my sequel, uh my sequel or was it Berkeley? It was Berkeley 
for a while. It was basically yeah. just flat for a while. Anyhow, because the, because at the time and it wasn't because the the explanation and it makes sense because it was hard to install even as was. But at the time, like circa two thousand one two thousand two. Most shared hosting accounts didn't have MySQL access. Yeah, if memory they, serves, they had a fairly um, – it was well done. It was easy to follow, but they had a very detailed, like, please do not send us the donation until you make sure that you've got these yeah. things. You know, you, you need to be able to go in and change, you know, um, uh, f- uh, file permissions. You, you need to have thus and such right privileges to here. It wasn't hard in retrospect, but for me, that, that was my first shared account. Everything I had before that was a teal to something on, on somebody's server where you absolutely didn't have that. Mm-hmm. But here's what Howie used to do. Uh, I thought this was so brilliant mm-hmm. is when Howie would make, and he did a lot of these, a lot more than I ever did, but whenever Howie would install MT for a client, uh, he would go in and do, um, I don't know if it was display or, invis- or visibility, but he would go in and take out everything out of the control panel that they didn't need to see. A very clean control panel, but still, if all he needed to do was post stuff, he would go in, and I think using CSS, would selectively hide a bunch of the Chrome inside of MT so that you basically had two buttons for what you needed to do. And if, you know, if the nerd needed to go in and do it, in that case him, he could do that. I thought that was so smart. You know, and it's, it, it's, that's the thing you can do with that. Now, Blogger was great because you could, it had built-in FTP, but again, it's, it, that was built, that was a um, porte you know, that was an off-the-rack solution that would be fine as long as you had exactly a 34-inch waist and a 32-inch inseam. You know what I mean? Right. Like the, temp- the templates in Blogger was more or less, how would you like to style your standard structured it, it was a, it was a, It was a skin. Right. Yeah. Whereas movable type, the templates are really, how, you know, what kind of structure do you want? We watched um, uh, the uh, A New Hope Revisited this morning, and... Uh, which is a fan, you know, you know this, but it's a, it's a fan edit. Uh, well, it's more than a fan edit. It's it's a rethinking of the way Episode Four of Star Wars. This guy just went in and did an extraordinary amount of work. I don't know if you ever saw it, but no, guy, I don't think so. Oh, brother, Syracuse revisited. Hate, oh yeah, Syracuse hates it because Chewie gets a medal. He refuses to watch it. How but, does he? How does he do that? How does he? Get... Dude, he takes the rats out of Mos Eisley. Han shoots first. He well, fixes see, it I... all. We just watched, Jonas and I just watched on Monday, because Monday was the last day of his school break, because it was uh, New Year's celebrated. Isn't that what you call it? Observed. Observed. Um, and I watched, I had, I had, had a friend, because I'm not good with those, that side of the internet. I had a friend help me out, and I got the despecialized you're, versions you're of the original. You're so full of it's okay. It's okay. No, no. It's so full. You're just you're just so lying about that. Please continue. No, I'm not. But then I'm not good at that side. You know, I'm not good at that side of the internet. I, I really am not. And, and you're, we've good, had you're good at sandbagging at it. I know that. No, I'm really not. Okay. I'm telling you. You come here and look at my home media library, and you will find very few things from that side of the internet. Not for any. Because you can't board. run it on Apple TV. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's too big of a pain in the butt. Um. No, but we watched the despecialized versions, which I thought were great. Tell me what that is. So despecialized version, some guy in Poland who um, took all of the available home video releases of Star Wars. I, I, I mean, I some, you know, all of them. The, the LaserDisc 1, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think anything came from VHS, but let's say every LaserDisc to the DVDs to the... Um, do you remember the one DVD release came? It had, had 
Pardon? version. I'm sorry. The, right. It had the crappy, the, it, the crappy version had, hidden on the extra features. Right. On the extra features, there were theatrical releases, but they were like really poor color correction, dirty prints. It looks like uh, it had been running at a drive-in for six years and then got stored in somebody's garage. Yeah. It, it, had, they nicks, like, it had nicks and dirt all over. It was a total mess. Like when you selected it on screen on the DVD player, it, 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 was, it just said, okay, here. Fine. Here's the original version of the greatest right. movie ever made. But he took he took all of those um, and tried to. But he's younger. He's he was born in like 1985 or six or something like that. So he had never actually seen Star Wars in a theater. Uh, but decided that he wanted to try to recreate it as best he could and used all of the sources he could find. So every single he tried to re- his best effort at recreating the original trilogy, but with the best possible picture. So for all of the scenes that are just completely unchanged in the mm-hmm. whatever the latest and greatest Lucas release, he just uses them and you know with their color correction and the, everything. The Sandcrawler looks better. Let's be honest. You know what I mean? The Jawa, the big Jawa boat. It, mm-hmm. it does. It looks pretty great, and it's not screwy looking. Yeah. So you use that, right? Um, you know, but takes out all the the nonsense. You know, so when they come into Mos Eisley, I do know I did notice, and it it dropped down in fidelity. Like it looked didn't look as sharp as the scene before that, um, because I guess he was pulling it from I, I don't know I don't even know where, but either he pulled that from the the crummy DVD release of the original ones, or maybe he even got it from the laser disc version. You know, but you don't see any big dinosaurs in Mos Eisley, uh, and it's you know overall it's pretty smooth. It, it, and I thought it was very enjoyable. Well, check, and my son, check out that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I tweeted it, and I, I it, you know, it, what was, was it called again? Tell me again. Despecialized. The Despecialized, Despecialized uh, Star Wars tr- trilogy. Okay. And I've got some really cool poster art. Look at that link I just sent you. Uh, that's the one we watched, and you know, it, this is not for everybody. This is exactly in the pocket for me. Because you can go see his changes. And the guy actually does, I think it's probably next to the, maybe the Phantom Edit. It's one of the best known of the fan edits. Just because the guy put just an extraordinary amount of effort into making the improvements he thinks needed to be made. It's even got, you can watch a version with, uh, not captions, but, you know, he'll just, has a little, like, you know, text on Run, screen. Running commentary? Well, he doesn't talk, but he'll go, like, like right here. Right here, I, when he throws, when Darth Vader picks the guy up by the throat and throws him and it looks totally fake, like he fixed right. that a little bit. There's one spot where like the, the stormtrooper at the beginning gets shot and the bolt sound it totally doesn't match with when he gets hit. He fixes that. The arm that gets cut off in the cantina, it's actually the guy's wrong arm, left versus mm-hmm. right or whatever. He fixes that. And it's, it's to my eyes, pretty seamless. It's DVD quality. But, you know, we've got a copy of the new one that's beautiful, but that's the one we like to watch. And because I'm, you know, an amateur historian, I want her to watch that one. I want, I want Han shoots first is the number one rule of Star Wars. Right. It, you don't, right. Star Wars where Han doesn't shoot first is not Star Wars. Right. Because it was, for me, honestly, and I say this, and I know that, that we nerds obsess over Han shooting first. And, and you know, it, 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 it's like a best-selling T-shirt, Han shot first. But, but that would be like re- for you, like the Yankees didn't win a couple times. Exactly. It's changing the way the story went. Right. Or, you know, Christ never came out of the cave. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know, that kind of changes things a little bit. And the stone's a little pink now. Right. Um, uh, 
But I had a reason for mentioning this. I just remember, though, that of all the fantastic things that just blew my mind as a four or five year old, seeing it in a giant theater with my dad and just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, there's no doubt. I mean, I I have visceral memory of the first time I saw Star Wars um, at the Majestic Theater in Mount Penn, Pennsylvania. Uh, these fantastic starships, lightsabers, lasers that looked absolutely real, unlike every other ray gun I'd ever seen in my life. Um, but some of the things that really stuck out to me were things like just just the fact that Han was so cool and shot a guy under the table. Uh, I love the one scene towards the end when when Han and Chewie and Leia and Luke got separated in the Death Star and Han like waits until the last possible second and kind of Indiana Jones it through the iris door. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and was Harrison Ford that close to getting his leg caught in it? No, not really. But to me, in my mind, having only seen it once, it was like impossible. Like he jumped through like a, a hole that was too small for him to fit through. Mm-hmm. Just a door, just a guy running through a door that was closing. Yeah, but I mean, this, you know, those characters did stuff for a reason. Well, here, here's the reason I mention it. I, I, you know, we probably shouldn't do too much Star Wars. But the, the reason I mention it, it has to do with the Legos and movable type thing. Which is, uh, so we started watching that today, and I ended up, Ellie, Ellie made me, a, this morning while we were watching, she made me a light, uh, made me a land speeder of an index card and gave it to me. You know, which for a variety of reasons made me really happy. It's in my wallet now. Uh, but I was like, oh, let me show you something. And I went on YouTube and found the commercial, the TV commercial for the land speeder that I had. Which, at the time, I, I love-hated. Like, I, I loved it because it was from Star Wars, and you could put, you know, the little Kenner figures in them. But it did kind of suck. And I was like, then I said to Ellie, and I actually made Madeline come over. And you know, my wife loves watching videos uh, for things, especially for Star Wars. So I brought her over, and I said, I want to show you the most disappointing uh, big gift. You know, you get the big gift every year. Yeah. You get the bike. You know, you get the, my, like last year, our daughter got the Ikea kitchen. You get, mm. you get the big gift. My big gift in 1978, I got a, you know, of course, I got a copy of the black, you know, John Williams album, double mm-hmm. album. But I got the Death Star, which... In my head, when I was uh, 11 or 12, in that commercial, it looked so awesome. And on Christmas Day, it was the, like the biggest piece of crap you've ever seen. <laughs> it was this totally flimsy... You didn't have it. You were too little to have that. Um, no, but it remained in on sale for years after it. I don't think I got it the first year. <laughs> it was like the Kiss but, solo records of Star Wars stuff. I, I had a good friend. I had, I had at least one good friend, uh, David Newmore, who lived two doors down. Um, same age. And so we kind of coordinated our Star Wars purchases, um, and <laughs> and he got the Death Star, and I got the Millennium Falcon. Oh, you you got the good one. Yeah, I had the X Wing Fighter too, which was way better than Death Star. But okay, here, this is where it relates to Legos and uh, Ben Trot. You, so I had this thing. I got it. Of course, I'm thrilled. It's in the giant box. You open it up. It's black. It's got the little. It, it's Star Wars. So, you know, I, I've got whatever, you know, an 11-year-old has for a boner at the time. I open it up, I take it out. And it's very much one of those, like, I, I don't know how many, like, board games you guys buy today, but, like, or, or obviously you don't do the Barbie route. But something that's so common today, which is a really flimsy plastic skeleton with, with uh, you know, mass-printed cardboard in between the bits of plastic. It was yeah. totally flimsy. It looked like it looked like uh, putting together chutes and ladders. It was ridiculous. And yes, it had three stories, but it, it was entirely prescriptive, predefined play. The top floor had a little chair, and Darth Vader sat next to one of those big guns, which, of course, makes total sense. And then uh, a floor down, you can fall through the floor and land in the trash compactor. 
which was this really flimsy, poorly made. It's like using an Android phone. You turn this thing, and it just doesn't feel good. And and the garbage, and it does come with a little monster, right? But when you it, the, the garbage is that kind of really cheap foam that like you would use to mm-hmm. pack something. Not even like nice foam. Not even like Jesse the Yodel and Cowgirl foam. But like little pieces of like pink and green foam cut in slightly irregular shapes. And they fall into there, and then you squeeze the thing shut. And there's like almost exactly four things that you can do when you play with this. And to me, that's what a lot of software in general, poor software in general, does. It's like it does a couple things poorly, but it does those things. There's another class of software that does a couple things really well. Actually, there's a Tumblr I follow and like a lot called One Thing Well where the guy just links to an app that does one thing well. I mean, obviously Unix being a big thing here. But to me, this is the difference between like taking that thing and putting it up against old school Legos. Like there's, I know you, and it seems to me that you and your kid do lots of building stuff out of Legos. We haven't gotten to the like buy a kit thing. When we buy a kit, it's a disaster. When we were in New Zealand, we bought a, we bought a land speeder and it was a total disaster because my daughter was three. She would take one part, one tiny little black, piece and that means we can't build the light <laughs> it means we right. can't build the land speeder now you know you buy the winnie the pooh set in duplo and you can make exactly that thing whereas right. if you go out and buy the green box of 400 pieces you can make whatever you want and you know I, I this is really beating an old man point to death but that's the difference between the death star and the legos that is the difference between movable type and a, and a pret-a-porter blogging system is that you, you? If you're smart enough and creative enough, you can use those pieces to make something distinctly different from what was imagined, and nobody will ever look at that and go, "Oh, that's an MT block." Right. In your case, nobody could look at what you're doing and go, "Oh, well, clearly uh, that's Joomla." Like that's not going to happen. Right. And that's the difference. And I, you know, I don't want to, you know, be that dad, like you know, fleecy Northern California dad, but like I would really much rather that she gets a set of Legos where we can make stuff together and it'll be whatever. And then when we hit that constraint, we try to be creative, whether that's magnetiles or whatever. I would really much rather do that than give her this, this Barbie dream house where she gets to have drinks and take a bath and that's it. Yeah. I worry about that with the star Wars Lego kits, which is what Jonas wants the most. But that's which more like is... models. That's really more like tester or, you know, like uh, right. Ravel. It's more like building a Ravel model. Well, and the big difference I see from my childhood was my childhood, um, I, I had a lot of like most of the Lego kits that I got, or that at least that I remember getting, weren't those generic green ones that were like just primary color blocks. They were space kits, but they weren't like a brand. You know, it was just Lego space adventures. So it was just generic yellow face Lego guys, and it would come with instructions to build like an elaborate spaceship. And I every time I got one, I would build the spaceship that they came with that the model, you know, that the box was supposed to be able to make. Um, but the instructions often would have, if it was a big enough kit, there'd be like three ships you could make. Not at the same time. Not like there were enough pieces that you could build mm-hmm. um, all three. You could choose one, build it, and if you wanted to build one of the other ones, you had to take your thing apart. But the implication was, you know, you're not building this and then leaving it together forever. You're building it and then you take it apart. Uh, so I would like build it, I would build the one I liked best and then I would immediately think, now how can I make this better? And I would like take it all apart and make something original and just throw the instructions away. Mm -hmm. It was really just a way to get good pieces to make my own ship. And 
I worry about that because with the Star Wars stuff, you could do that because it comes with all sorts of cool pieces and you could just take a look at this ship and that ship and just see how you could take them apart and make a combine them to make a new thing. But because it's Star Wars, I worry that you know that this is actually the right way to build a TIE fighter, you know, that it's canon. There was no canon <laughs> for the generic Lego space adventure, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it would be insincere for me to say I wouldn't have killed for that. Like, I did not want the off-brand lightsaber. I wanted the lightsaber that had the logo on it and cost twice as much. Nothing's more disappointing when you're a kid than getting something that your parents think is close enough. Right. Right? I got the off-brand laser gun. And my, oh. one of my friends got the Han Solo, the black Han Solo blaster. <laughs> felt that's, like, like, that's like getting corrective shoes. Right. Oh, God. That blaster was so badass. It was. Yeah. I, and, but I mean, like, seriously, I mean, like, you know, uh, you, there's so much where we, I don't know about you, but, but like, you know, there's so much anxiety about, like, do they do too much and too little of things, you know, and to TV, not enough, you know, falling off of swings and all that kind of crap. But I mean, I, I, like I say, I, I, if I could have had the exact kit to make the exact thing, I would have done it. I think there's a lot of hagiography around, you know, when I was a kid, we had blocks and we made a nuclear reactor and all that. I mean, you know, well, you also had polio. I mean, that doesn't make it a great time. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree, though, that for young kids, that just the big green box of Legos, man, that's the way to go. You know, we hit this with magnetiles. Um, do you, do you, have, you ever seen the magnetiles? No, I don't think so. Uh, they're they're pretty costly, but it's if you can imagine, uh, like there's f- maybe five geometric shapes. So imagine like a piece of toast, like a, except it's a, you know, imagine a flat square. A uh, flat isosceles triangle, a flat um, equilateral triangle. Uh, there's like anyway, there's several of these different shapes, and you get a bunch of these, and they all have strategically placed magnets so that they'll stick together. It's not nearly as strong as Legos, but you can just slap these things together however you want. It's really easy to make a Gothic church, for example. You can, huh. you can, which my daughter loves, big fan. Uh, but anyway, you can make whatever you want. And what's weird is like that's the first one of those kinds of. Um, unstructured things that she's really gotten into. She likes Duplos, but we always end up making a place for Lightning McQueen and made her to sleep. You know, we make very basic garages like for Thomas and Henry to be in. But in this case, like she doesn't know what she's making. It's just abstract things. Uh, They're pretty costly. And there's a big flood in Thailand. And so the factory is all screwed up, so we couldn't get those this year. Talk about a first world problem. But but yeah, I know, so no more of those. But, But no, but that's one where... You know, it, there's no, nothing – they don't give you instructions on how to make anything. There's a picture of something on the front, but it's, it's like it's totally freeform. You can just make whatever. And, and it's, that's the first thing that she's really loved like that. And I like them too. You know, when I come home, I got the attention problems. I come home and I'm tired. I'm recording podcasts all day. You know, it's, it's hard. I get home and the, I want to organize. I want to I sort these by color. I want to put them together. I want it's, to – it's very relaxing. I don't know if you ever do things like that. It can be very, very relaxing. I enjoy putting playing with the Lego with the boy. But I do – I worry though. I just – like I said, I worry though that in the modern Lego world where everything is branded Harry Potter or Star Wars, the, the mindset it instills is you put it together and then keep it together. Don't like you see that was, as two different things though? I mean when we go to our toy store, you know, it's – you know what drives me crazy is when we go to the bookstore, we have like <laughs> one bookstore uh, that's you know near our house and it's a great bookstore. It's – uh, for anybody from the Bay Area, it's the guy who used to own a uh, clean, well-lighted place for books. He now has a place near our house. Don't be creepy. And um, we go there, and uh, there's this, there's a giant 
shelves of all the cool books, all the big books with, you know, all of the like, well, you got the Dr. Seuss books, you got Olivia, you got all, all the cool books, and you see spines, right? And then there's these three racks, you know, like the eyeglass kind of spinning racks, where the covers all face out. This sounds like a subtle distinction, but it's not. If you were a child, would you rather look at a wall of spines, or would you rather see a spinning thing with frickin' Dora and Scooby-Doo on it? It's crack. The kid does not want to go and browse through spines. The kid sees Dora and Diego and runs over. And right. I think that's exactly what happens in the toy area by design. They're going to, like at the toy store very near that place, they've got a giant aisle of branded Legos and then literally under a table. You know that stupid skateboard thing you do with your fingers? I don't understand that. They have a whole table of that and under that they have the boxes of Duplo and Legos. It's yeah, like an I know afterthought. What you mean, the skateboard with your fingers. Like, I don't get that, that either. What is that? Yeah, I don't get that either. Are those kids like, okay? <laughs> I don't know. I used to ride a skateboard. I was not very good at it. But well, I, I used to do things with my fingers. And But, you know, I, I'm not sure I need a bowl to do that in. But uh, to me, the thrill of riding a skateboard was, uh, you know, being reckless. It's going real fast and jumping over things and doing things that were dangerous. It's, you know, thrill-seeking. I, I don't understand... I'm riding a little three-inch skateboard with your two fingers. I don't. I don't. I really don't get the appeal of that. That's. Weird. Did you ever do the games like the table games? Did you ever like make a little football and you flip yeah, it with did the you, triangle? Or, or yeah. Oh, exactly. Or did you ever do the thing where you get three coins to play hockey? You ever do yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. You have to shoot it through the two coins, right? That, yeah. Exactly. And that's like our version. That was a pretty good game. You could play that with three coins anywhere, and that's yeah. probably the closest thing we'll ever have to saving string during a deadly depression. That, but that was pretty fun. And, you know, it, it, part of the fun was that it really – and I don't mean this in, like, a nostalgic way. It actually – I had plenty of great toys. It was actually cool that you could do that in school. Like, during lunch, you could do that. Right. And then I'm not sure why you need a, a, a branded skateboard to do that. That feels dangerous to me. Right. And I guess part of it, too, is that we called the, the game with the triangular folded-up piece of paper football. But it really had no – almost no bearing on actual football whatsoever. Yeah, when we would play the penny game, the hockey game, we would get into fights just to try and keep it realistic, tear our pads off. <laughs> but again, you didn't play it with a little fake hockey stick. Well, you didn't play it with a thing that said whatever, I don't know, right. hockey team, like a Flyers or Bruins. or Bruins, what's Bruins? What game is that? That's the hockey. Okay. I thought it was maybe basketball. But, but I, I think this has always existed. You go watch the Christmas story. He wants the Dakota ring branded. Yeah. With Little Orphan Annie, I don't think this has ever, ever not been there. You know, I got to tell you, John, this is quick, but I, I, I and also want to talk to you about ADD because I think you have ADD. We don't have to talk about that here, but, but the, um, but we should sometime. The, I, I think, I think this goes back to Sesame Street. Sesame Street was a really mixed bag. I think it was a Trojan horse because it was the first TV show that used science to screw with kids' brains. In their case, they used it for good, right? They used it to like say, look, kids television or otherwise have a certain attention span and we can benefit from that attention span by crafting content if you like that suits that right like, like a little kid will learn a lot more about numbers if they watch 10 short things about numbers rather than one really really long thing about numbers but i think that same kind of research is what's making all this stuff so awful today you know well, you, you, do you watch commercials at your house you know we used to we tried to avoid it as best we could and my wife when she's watching TV, is it, she doesn't even have to think about it. I mean, she's she she needs to have the TiVo remote in her hand, and 
she she I don't think she's seen a commercial in years. And if she does, if I somehow end up with the TiVo remote, and a cool, it looks to me like like I start the commercials come on, and if the first commercial looks cool, I want to stick through it. Hmm. I wait until I see a commercial that bores me. Give me an example she, of a cool commercial. I like for a, a movie that looks good. Hmm. You know, like uh, uh, Mission Impossible or something. Yeah, like I think I think literally. I mean, I don't know what made you say that, but I think we were watching Always Sunny in Philadelphia and um, first commercial break, it was Mission Impossible 4. And I was like, ooh, and she's like grabbing the remote out of my hand. Like, what are you doing? My lady went to see it a couple you know, nights like, ago. She, 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 said, she said it was good. She said it was really good. She watches, if I make my wife watch one commercial, it's like I come out with a drink with my thumb in it. She notices. And I have a dirty, dirty thumbnail. <laughs> I hate when people do that. And I hate when people stack plates when they clear the table. It makes me crazy. Oh, it makes me insane. Well, here, here's the thing. And like, first of all, let me just stipulate that I'm a bad father. I, uh, I've let my child, oh God, I, I, you know, if I could go back and change anything about the way I've raised my child, the only thing I would change is to follow the Syracuse principle and not even acknowledge one, two, and three, because I showed, I showed her the Phantom Menace. And I, and I can't even tell you. So, so I, my daughter has seen all the Star Wars movies numerous times. I, she is four. I am a bad father. I want to see. I disagree that. with that. I've I've let Jonas see them all, and I feel like he lives in a different era, and his friends are yeah. far more. They they he's, they he's like he's like fourteen now, right? Yeah, I know he's eight, but okay. uh, you know his in first and second grade, his friends had all seen them all, and you're you, you know it's. You'd be left out. Like, imagine if somehow your dad hadn't let you watch The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's as left out as you'd, as you'd be. If For her, that's had... Clone Wars. There's a yeah, lot but... of pressure. Kenneth Kenneth watches Clone Wars, and Ian watches Clone Wars, right. and, and right. Uh, uh, Donovan, who she, whom she calls uh, Donovan, uh, watches it. So a lot of times when we look at stuff, she goes, I think that's from Clone Wars. I think Kenneth likes that. So the she feels really... a little left out because she doesn't watch Clone Wars. And, you know, I don't think Jonas likes the original trilogy any less, but he doesn't see the distinction. between. He doesn't see any kind of hard line between the two. Is Clone Wars any like, good? Is, is it any good? The show? The, the yeah. cartoon? I mean, is it something where, I, again, I, I want to come back to the Syracuse principle in a second, but do, do you, have you watched the Clone Wars? Is it something that I can tolerate? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, it's not great. I think that they could probably, I think they do like 20 episodes a season. And I think if they only did, if they only took the 10 best ideas they had, it would be a much better show. Yeah. Um, but like the 10 best episodes of each season, I think are actually decent. They're pretty darn good for, for a kid's cartoon show. Well, you've probably heard him say this, but Syracuse does not even acknowledge the existence of one, two, three. I mean, as I understand it, he should say this himself, but my understanding is that as long as you live under my roof, you go to college, you can go learn that these movies exist. I'm not even going to acknowledge them. If you find out about it, I'll deny that they exist. I, I will say this. I think that the Anakin Skywalker of the Clone Wars show is a far more interesting character than the Anakin okay. Skywalker of the trilogy. He actually engenders actual sympathy in you. Like He does the two things that, you, that the character needs to have, is that you kind of like him and enjoy his recklessness um, and root for him. And at the other side, you can kind of see all along how he plays with he. You know, he comes close to the dark side at all times. Like he flies real low to the ground on that border between the dark side and the light side. Uh, I will like you see how that potential is there. I've never seen two and three, um, and I learned about most of what I know about what happens in the Star Wars saga. I learned last week when we bought. Uh, I, I did not know 
spoiler alert. I, I did not know uh, that how much of a, a cyborg or whatever Darth Vader is. I never knew that. I mean, I knew he obviously had the breath thing, and I didn't know how it happened until last week. And I really like Star Wars. That's how much like I've avoided these. Seriously, and, and oh, how about this? Have do you have um, have you got any of those pop up books that that dude makes? Have no. you seen the insane pop up books? No. You need to get this tomorrow. It's thirty five dollars. It's Star Wars, and I, I won't spoil it for you. But I'm just saying, you open up. Oh, this is a cool pop up book. But on every page, in like the top left, right corners, different sizes, very well designed. You open up another flap on the page, and like it's Biggs. When you open it, it's Biggs removing his helmet. And then you go, wait a minute, there's another one in here. And you open that, and it could be like an Ewok or something. It's incredibly, just from a design standpoint, I'll send you a link for it. You should totally check it out. But that's where, <coughs> excuse me, between that and the visual encyclopedia, that's where I learned what happens. And Oh, I, I think I do have one of these pop-up books, Jonas, but I think he destroyed it. A pop-up oh, guide uh, to the galaxy by Matthew uh, Reinhardt. It's that one dude, and this one dude makes lots, and the ones at our libraries are a mess. I mean, wow, it looks like... I haven't seen. I haven't looked at this book in like four years because I think Jonas destroyed it about four years ago. Not like recklessly, but like. Oh no! Uh, you can't help it. Like the cantina is very fragile. The cantina, like after yeah, day one. No, we just have this. This is it. Is great. He, he destroyed it because he read it like three, five times a day. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, what was my point in all of this? Clone Wars, uh, Death Star, Phantom. Edit. You ever seen the Phantom Edit? Yeah. No, no, no. I can't, I can't find a copy of it. I really want to see it. This is a true story, and I, I hate to say something cute, but I'm going to share this. Um, th- my daughter knows how I feel about The Phantom Menace. I, I keep forgetting. Like, I forget how good The Empire Strikes Back is until I watch it, and I go, you know, this is a really good movie. And then I forget how excruciating The Phantom Menace is until it's on. And, like, in my brain, I don't know, I've some kind of... I've forgotten about how much Jar Jar Binks there is in it. I know that's cliche, but I mean it, and just and just how much you know Misa Mula. I mean, like it's just oh, it just grinds me. But she loves it, and so we watched it because she, you know, it's very kid, except for the meetings. She likes the kid stuff in it. But she said to me the other day, I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a copy of this that's going to be better. She understands that I go out and I look for a 720 of things. We've talked about this. She's four, and I said I'm looking for a better thing, and she's like, I, you know, she's like, I really like it. And I said, well, you, you know, I hope you don't like it too much. And she said, I'm going to marry it. And I said, you are forbidden. If you live in my house, you are never going to marry the Phantom Menace. And she said, I love it. And I'm going to marry it. And she smiled. And I said, well, I'm not paying for any of that. I may not even come. <laughs> this, is what, this is what kids do today. This is, this is, this kids, is what we're the facing. Kids love, the kids love the new trilogy. And, I mean, Lucas has said that it's his defense. And it, I think it actually holds up that if you just talk to kids who've seen it, they love it. But... They're very different movies. That's the thing. And it's weird. My son, like I said, my son and his friends really don't see the distinction between the two trilogies. I mean, and he's still young enough to where the whole idea that that there's different actors, but they're playing the same characters, and it's there's like a 20-year gap between the two trilogies. Like mm-hmm. He sees it a little bit more like James Bond, where they've sort of just recast the guy. And in some of the movies, Obi-Wan's an old man, and in some of the movies, he's a young guy. So he, he really gets that. No, he doesn't get it. He, you know, like To me, he doesn't get the chronology. He clearly doesn't get the chronology. And he kind of gets mixed up sometimes and can't believe that Anakin is Luke's dad because Anakin, the only time you ever see him is he's Luke's age. Mm-hmm. So he still doesn't quite get that. Right. Um, but it's a lot closer now than when he first started watching the trilogy. 
or the the whole whatever it's called. Six I'm still going to try and find this thing. Uh, I don't like doing the torrents because it's it's creepy. But um, the the commercial thing, you know. So I'm stipulating that I'm a terrible father, but just because we hate commercials. The nature of the way that we consume media, and let's leave it at that, is that, you know, whether it's the TiVo or whether it's Apple TV or whether it's other things we don't do, is like we just don't have commercials in our house. We don't. We got – I mean, we, we think, I think we might still have cable. I'm not sure. But like the only time we ever check to see if we still have it is – because, you know, Comcast, you can't change anything with those jackals. You try right. – it's, it's – I must be even worse there. But, you know, the only time we see commercials is hotel rooms. Where we're right. going to placate her for like a, a you know a tough day of travel and disruption and weird food and we'll flip on what is it like uh, whatever the one is that you know Cartoon Network or whatever yeah or the Disney Channel Disney it's excruciating yeah because that's where the science really comes through you get yeah. like when you don't see it for a while and yeah. then you see and you're just like Ellie honey that part at the beginning is not the toy. That part at the beginning is a cartoon that looks like the toy. Yeah. And then for a second, they show the toy, and it's clearly something that got, you know, splatted out of some machine in China. And I hate it. I hate it. And I hate that she even has to be exposed to that. It's one step down from being the guy in charge of the Joe Camel cigarette campaign, mm -hmm. where you really knew that you were were setting up people to get a terrible debilitating lifelong addiction and possible lung cancer uh it is a cut below that because you're just selling crappy pieces of plastic but i can't imagine how much the people in charge of making those commercials hate themselves because they really there is a science to it and you can see through adult eyes especially like you said like if you don't happen to watch a lot of commercials on a regular basis and it's like maybe you haven't seen a commercial in three or four weeks which is often for me that i don't see a television commercial for three or four weeks and then you see it and like you said if especially the kids ones the kids ones are so cynical and it's so transparent i I just can't imagine how much the people who did make them hate themselves because the, the the thing is you know that it works yeah, we. I would say if I have a parenting mistake, it's it's exposing Jonas to any commercials at all. Like at some age, like we. we that's tried a, that's to a humble brag, John. That's a humble brag. Is it? I, I don't think know. so. I think because I think it's a pretty bad mistake. I feel like if I, I've done anything poorly as a parent, it's giving her an unrealistic model of how much love, affection, and good decision making will ruin her for the rest of men in her life. <laughs> I, now, now, can I can I just I want to I want to come back to UCSF. UCSF, where my wife used to work here in town, they uh, have the archive. They maintain an archive of I think I need to look this up, but but what I remember is that it's a huge body of literature about the tobacco settlement. And for example, you might remember this a few years ago, floating around some of the letters between directors and like Philip Morris, where it was like where we're going to put cigarettes in Rambo. Because, I mean, there was product placement. I mean, you know, there's a reason Winona Ryder smokes in so many movies. And it's because they never revealed that, like, they wanted cigarettes in every movie in the same way that you want to have that Pepsi logo in the background. They had cigarette product placement, and a lot of the movies that we watched, especially in the 80s, are just full of them. Um, Now, on the other hand, I want to ask you a question about – and you can grab that if you want. But what I want to ask you, I seem to recall that you also have an affection for photos of children smoking. Yes. Do you, have, do you maintain that anywhere, or is that just as you find it? I just have a cute menu, Jimbo. Okay. <laughs> How do you organize stuff in your Jimbo? You can't have folders, right? Yeah, you can, but there's not. There's no higher.
Hmm. You there? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know you, why I hit the mute button halfway through my sentence. Sometimes I, sometimes I, yes, and some of my other, sometimes I hit, um, <laughs> I, I hit pause, I hit pause instead of mute and you hear bloop. <laughs> well, um, I marked it. No, I tagged them. Oh, okay. So I believe I have a tag, kids smoking or children smoking or something like that. I just find it to be very funny. I find it to be like a funny, especially if it's really old and it seems oh, like yeah. it wasn't set up. And it, you know, the ones that to me that don't count is something that somebody has made recently where they know that they're being obnoxious and they've just put a cigarette in a kid's mouth. No, you're talking about like, like three three kids in the 30s sitting around clearly proud of the fact that they're smoking. Right, and that they've already put in like a hard day of work, like a harder <laughs> day of work than I've ever done in my life. <laughs> They've been organizing gravel or something. But, right. um, <clears throat> yeah, the cigarettes, uh, you see. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, it also provides an opportunity then to talk about these things. But, you know, I, you know, I always thought I'd be a better dad at having those kinds of conversations. I always thought I would be a lot better at having the, like, value neutral, like, what do you think of that? And instead I'm like, now I'm the dad that's like, you know, no. If you want, we will watch a movie today. We will watch a two-hour movie, but it must be a Pixar movie. You may pick a Pixar movie. We are, you know, th- this is my version of being a good dad now. Is it has to be something that I like, and that's why I ask you about the Clone Wars because like I can't tolerate another Diego thing, no, ever, ever, not, ever. It's not like that. It's pretty good. Hmm. Can I ask you a question that's vaguely related to the show? Sure. It's vaguely related, and you do not have to talk about this. Uh, Parenthood and Star Wars. I think that's 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 a dinger right there, but. Um, in other programs, <clears throat> a lot of people have talked about when you were on that On the Verge program. Right. Um, and you've talked a lot about this in other places, but this idea of whether or not you or other quote-unquote fanboys, as, and there's just not enough air quotes for that, but whether or not you're biased in things that you cover. And right. something I wanted to ask you, and I don't know how to use IRC, so I had no way of asking, but... um. How do you how do you distinguish or contrast things like bias? What was the other words you used? Biased or uh, cher- maybe cherry picking? I mean, how do you contrast that with the idea of credibility? Because it seems to me that like there, there there's a distinction worth making there. That there there are some things that are biased, and then other things that are in, incredible. And do you, do you make any distinction between that? You know, I don't even know if that's a good question, but I think there may be a difference, and I want to know what you think. I definitely do, but I think that, to me, the credibility comes from having a track record and leaving everything up there, and that you can go back, and if you're paying attention all along, you can see how it holds up over time. You know, And I'm, I guess the one thing, too, is that I'm never trying to paint a picture of this week, this week in tech. I'm trying to paint a, the big picture like a years long tapestry and I have to do it though one day at a time based on what's going on right now um, and so like with the cherry picking it's because it fits in with the big story that I'm telling like so one of the aspects of the big picture like not this week not the phone that just came out last week and the version of Android that just came out three weeks ago but just overall is that Android phones have poor battery life compared to the iPhone, um, or some of them do, or, um, you know, that Android phones don't get software updates, that you buy it, whatever it comes with is all you get. 
Uh, so I might cherry pick things like that out of a, a review of a new phone because it fits in with the larger narrative. And now my, maybe parts of the narrative change, maybe parts of them, you know, maybe I'm wrong. But you can go back and you have to look at the, the story that's being told over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. But my name is on all of it. I mean, that's to me is what is what makes it different. Um, I'm just never going to go out of my way, and I, you know, I forget how much of this. It's I've tried to get it all out in one. Here's like a statement of why I do it this way, rather than trying to be even-handed. Um, I just see it as two different ways of approaching it. Where the one way is to be even-handed and try to. If one side of a dispute is a up and the other side's down, then sort of aim your guns at the one that's up and sort of boost the one that's down to try to make, you know, help, yeah. the, help the guy who's behind. As you say, make it feel like a horse race, whether it is or not. Right. Uh, exactly. Whereas I, to me, I have no interest in that because to me that feels dishonest. It really feels dishonest. And I feel like if there's a big complaint that I have with, even with The Verge, who I think does that genre of site better than anybody, um, but I feel like they paint a misleading picture of the industry as a whole. Like I, because they have an en- unending stream of reviews of gadgets every week after week after week, they make it seem as though all of these gadgets are worthy of your attention. And the truth is most of them are complete crap and they're not worthy of your attention. And, and, and they, they end up saying as much pretty often. Right. But I often feel, though, that there's, if that's what you want, though, and you crave that, um, if you really are more interested in the new than the best, it does fit in, though, with what you hope is the truth. Because wouldn't it be awesome if it really were true that the, that every three weeks the best phone ever made arrives? It would be kind of fantastic. Well, let, me get, let me give you an angle on this. You could tell me if I've, – I've actually been thinking about this not a lot, but periodically since that episode uh, where you talked to Dan about that. And I, you can tell me if you think this is BS. You're probably the wrong person to ask um, because I tend to agree with a lot of stuff that you say. But uh, it seems that whole approach, even the conversation that you're having about this, strikes me as being a little bit myopic. Because I think what, in some ways, which not you, not you specifically, but this whole, you know, like I like to say, narcissism of minor differences, like getting so zoomed in on these certain topics. And this kind of goes back to the thing we did at South by Southwest a few years ago, the voice and obsession idea. Was that right? Yeah. Or topic. Top. Yeah. Yeah. Voice, voice and, and obsession. Voice times obsession. Yeah. Um, How to supercharge your... How to, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Turbocharge your life hacks. The... Um, there's another word that keeps coming up um, related to those, uh, completion or incompletion. So I think the case that someone could try to make against somebody like you or arguably somebody like Paul Therod or whoever is that your presentation of this is incomplete as against some gadget blog with 50 posts a day that is complete in the sense that there will never be a handheld device that is not talked about in some form or fashion. Admittedly, very much in the same way that, as you said when we did our, our uh, panel, that you 
if you you have the second version of you wonders, you know, how soon will John Gruber talk about this thing that he absolutely obviously has to talk about? Now, by the nature of your what I would define as focus, you have a smaller field of completion to cover. But you cover what your field of completion is, is uh, and I just made that up, that term, but your field of completion is whatever interests you, right? If you have a big blog, a gadget blog, your field of completion is placating a lot of readers who are expecting a high volume of stuff that covers everything and presents every potential opinion on it, has to find something good, has to find something bad, right? That's a mm-hmm. very, that is, in, in some ways, in, in the discussion we're having, you could define that as a total lack of focus, a total obsession on completion, right? What is the focus to that? But here's the other thing. If you can criticize you for being incomplete, if you could criticize a review that uh, Topolsky does that's, you know, uh, not favorable enough according to what somebody likes. You could. Why can't you also say you don't talk enough about cooking? If you really pull the lens back far enough in a real grown-up way on some level, isn't that really what we're saying? I mean, in your case, you're not talking about cooking and you're not talking about Windows except how it fits into your area of interest. That's why I say it's myopic and that's why I think it's really cynical and a little bit dim to focus so heavily on what ends up being not minor differences, because it's not a minor difference to the people that are involved. But isn't it possible that you could have credibility without bias, but it would feel like bias to someone else just because of what you've chosen to focus on? Can't you still be credible without having to cover everything? Yeah, I definitely think so. I hope so. I mean, I, you know. Do you think we're in a minority by believing that? No, but I do think, though, that... um it's it's maybe not a minority, but it is contrary to the as conventional wisdom of late twentieth century, at least in the U.S. I get the feeling like not it's not even fair to say the West because I think in Europe, it's always I don't think that their news media ever became quite as obsessed with what I call false balance um, as ours you know, this, this, the, the word objectivity, which isn't necessarily a bad word, but I just, like I've said before, to me, it's too abstract. It's, it covers, it's an umbrella word that covers things like being fair and accurate, where I think fair and accurate, you can, um, and accurate, you could even use a word like truthful is what's exact. I was walking around listening to you. And when you, when you in sort of implied air quotes said, um, what was the word you just used? Um, uh, ac- uh, accurate and what was the other word? Fair, truthful. Well, no, no. That, I, I kept thinking objectivity. You know what? Objectivity right. is a branded version of truth. Right. If it's true, there's no bias. That's that's the that's the thing that I find troubling. I said this on a previous episode of the show, but like that's that's what's troubling to me, and I kind of wish you'd come out and said is like the, the only bias is somebody who's not telling the truth. Right. I, 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 that's a good part to circle back to. And I am obsessed with being truthful, um, honest with my opinion. And if I say something as fact and it ends up being incorrect, I will correct it. I don't believe I've ever let a something false stand on daring fireball. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's an honest mistake. Sometimes I just get something wrong, but I'll correct it because I feel like that's important. And I feel like that's how I've built a reputation. One of the stories I like to come back to, and 
you know, it, because it's actual real politics, not just like tech politics, it's, it's, you know, half the audience is just going to tune out. But there was a survey after the 1996 U.S. presidential election. That was Bob Dole challenging uh, Bill Clinton for re-election. And somehow somebody conducted a survey of like the, the national affairs reporters. I don't, I'm not quite sure if they were like in a, the, those in the national press club or something like that. But the, the people who covered the reporters, not the like opinion columnists, but the reporters who covered the campaign, they asked, who did you vote for? And it was something like 80% of them voted for Bill Clinton or maybe even more than 80%, you know, like 85%, something like that. And that this was held up as proof that the na U.S. national news media has a liberal bias um, by some, you know, I presumably people who are more of a conservative or of a Republican mindset that they would say this is proof that the U.S. media is, is biased. But that doesn't prove that at all. It only you know, isn't it also possible that the people who cover the campaign as reporters are the most informed voters? They're hyper-informed. They know every single detail of the campaign because they wake up at 7 in the morning to get to, uh, you know, Bob Dole's stump speech in whatever state. And all day long they're following what they're, what's coming in over the wire, what the other guy's doing and what's saying in there. You know, watch the debate not just live, but then rewatch it so that they can get all the nuances. And that by being hyper-informed, they, can, by consensus, agreed that Bill Clinton is actually a pretty good president. And then in hindsight, as we get further from the Clinton presidency, and I, I, I think it's almost unanimous that as you get further from current events and a presidential term goes into history, the partisanship sort of fades away, right? I mean, even with, you know... You know, it takes a long time. But you think about the presidents who are in the black and white era. Uh, you know, people just aren't as as partisan about them as this year. You know, this year, you know, you're either pro or against Obama or well, whatever. black and white era, you may not even remember who they ran against. Right. You don't hear people uh, talking about whether Dewey should have won. Right. And things change. Like Nixon, who is, you know, a Republican and liberals hated him. Uh, he's the guy who founded the Environmental Protection Agency. You know, he was the president who started that, like mm -hmm. actually cleaned up, you know, got the federal government cleaning up uh, the environment. So a lot of things change in a couple of decades between what the parties represent. And, you, and in hindsight, it's a lot easier to see that. And I think as we get further from the Clinton presidency, on the whole, I mean, I think the guy did a pretty good job. I mean, I think uh, uh, I think there's a lot of people who are unemployed today who wish we had the Clinton economy than mm -hmm. than what we have now uh, and isn't that just isn't it reasonable to say in hindsight that the reporters simply got it right uh, absolutely and I mean the other part and is you can't prove it now maybe it is true it's one of those things you can't prove maybe they are maybe the truth is that that they were mindless liberal stooges and they were just gonna vote for Bill Clinton uh, no matter what. But it's also uh, a question of values and framework. And I, I'm always talking about the Douglas Lakoff book uh, with the one really good essay in it and then a lot of words. But, you know, a lot of it is how you see the world. And this is not a value judgment at all. But a lot of people just in America in general, maybe just in the West, have a framework for how they see the world. There's a way that they interpret the world. Uh, Lakoff makes the argument that conservatives, reason they've won the elections recently, in addition to setting aside their minor differences, is the ability to coalesce a vision of the nation as a family that's run by a father. 
And right. uh, whether you agree with that or not, I, I, I find that a pretty persuasive argument because I think li- uh, the other, on the other side, I think liberals or non-conservatives, non-Republicans have not coalesced around an idea that resonates with people's values. Instead, they've said what they're not into. They've adopted the language of the people they disagree with, and it makes them ineffectual and seem like dickless wonders. But, you know, on, on the other hand, what does a reporter do? A reporter asks questions. A reporter is a very liberal arts – a good reporter is a very liberal arts sort of person who does see the big picture and is curious about what's changed, different, or not what it seems. And they have a high tolerance for things that are a little bit paradoxical, much more – and I'm, this is, I'm not talking about reporters here. I'm not talking about Democrats, Republicans, or otherwise. I'm saying that if you're a good reporter and a good liberal student of the liberal arts, you're somebody – I've said this before, but I believe the liberal arts is about learning to use a library and learning to ask whether something is what it appears to be or how it's different from what it appears to be more, more saliently. And I think that's what a reporter does. And so maybe it has nothing to do with, with his stand on abortion. It could have a lot to do with how they like how the, guy, how the guy's mind works. And with Obama, I mean, I think one problem with Obama, I still support the guy. I think he's great. But I think one problem with all the hagiography and the hope posters was they did not ask how the guy operates. They right. asked about what he represents. And, that's, and that led people – and I, I got I, – John Gruber, I cannot tell you how much heat I got from friends of ours that own framed posters of Barack Obama. I got, I got nothing against that belief in hope. But you hire a lawyer and an accountant because they're a hard ass. You hire a politician because he or she knows how to get things done. And I think one reason people are so disappointed with Obama is they didn't look at how the man operates, how he runs things. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree that he's, he's not what they thought he was. But I think if you looked at I, – I don't think he misrepresented himself. Not at all. He had a, and, and uh, you know, not, as somebody who follows politics, I do not. Right. A lot of people say you can tell how well someone's going to do by how well they ran their campaign. Right. But put, put differently, um, if you have somebody who cannot even run a campaign – you have to ask how well, like if you have your entire staff in a state quit, you have to ask yourself how well that person's going to be able to hold together a cabinet, let alone a relationship with Congress. I would say this with getting, with talking about political reporters. And so what I, I think that their job, I think what they should think about is that the person reading the report they're writing right now is going to come out after reading it better informed of what is going on and the actual truth of what's going on. Wherever that takes you. So if one of the candidates proposes a tax policy, it doesn't matter if it's the Republican or Democrat, but they re- propose some sort of big, uh, big picture tax policy and they say that this is going to help balance the budget. And the truth of it is, is that any sort of mathematical, just actuarial analysis of it is that the opposite would happen, that it's just a giveaway to whatever class. Maybe it's the middle class, maybe it's the upper class, whatever. That should be front and center in the report, that the candidate has proposed this, claiming the that. facts, the facts. But but this, the you know, the nonpartisan congressional budget authority had analyzed it and says this. And it is, you know, completely opposite. Uh, that to me is the way reporting should work, regardless if you would say, well, that comes out of it painting this this uh, candidate as either ignorant or a shame, shameless, um, what's the word, opportunist. Mm-hmm. you know, a liar. Well, that's it. You know, that, that doesn't make the reporter biased. It to me is, you know, that's their job is to make the person better informed. You're not supposed to come out of it thinking that both candidates are, you know, equally honest and equally good no matter what they say. 
Well, and this is why I brought in that ridiculous angle on cooking, because I'll bet you in the world of food bloggers and whatever, I'm, and again, the fact that I say that and whatever is exactly the example of what I'm talking about. I don't know. I know who Paula Dean is because I've seen her on <laughs> magazines. She apparently likes butter. There's that uh, horrifying woman who's always smiling and holding a cup of coffee, Rachel Ray. There's, I, I don't, and there are people who probably have incredibly strong feelings about that. If there were a bias against Paula Dean. Well, see, from my point of view, I would see that as somebody from the outside and go, well, it's really a, it's really a preference for Paula Deen. And then you can make her recipes and decide on the, on the merits, as Swearingen would say, or as uh, – who's the, who's the prospector? What was his name? Deadwood. Hmm. I don't remember. Yeah. The only uh, guy I remember is Swearingen. Oh, he's the, the guy who I might have effed up my life flatter than hammered – I can't even quote the show on here – I stand before you. Uh, but no, but you look at it on some merits, right? Right. What, what are the merits of that? Did this recipe with all this butter turn out well or not? Now, my preference might be I don't want that much butter in my food. Now, for the foodies looking in on technology, they're gonna, all they're going to see is like, are you kidding me? It's like I say, my sister-in-law has no idea she's running iOS. She doesn't care. Right. She just knows that she likes this the iPad. And, and that is not an Apple thing. I can tell you, you know, there's probably 10 times more people who don't know they're running Android. Right. They don't know what ice cream sandwich is, and they don't care. They just know that this phone was on special, and they like it. You know, and I, I just I, I feel like, I, you know, in the same way, I've always been intrigued by people like Tom Wolfe because uh, I love his writing style. And I forget who said it. This is along the lines of Buckley or Tom Wolfe, but somebody once said of Tom Wolfe, it's almost like he could have just just decided one day by fiat whether he was going to be incredibly persuasive about being a liberal or incredibly persuasive about being a conservative. He's so good at what he does as a quote-unquote partisan, right, that he could, he could pick either side of that, and he would have been great at it. Buckley. I don't love Buckley. Uh, I didn't love the man. I, I think he said some pretty horrible things in his life, but he's super persuasive. Yeah. Every lawyer, when they go through law school, has to do things like moot court, and you have to learn that basically— To you know, take either side. Defending a child molester is what you're right. going to have to do today. You know what? We flipped a coin. And, and this is the one that you're going to defend. And it does not matter what you believe. It matters what you can prove. And, and then to me, though, that gets so horribly commingled in this world where people are, are watching for these tiny distinctions and waiting for the confirmation bias that shows that they've, you know, bet on the right horse. I don't know. I'm, I'm prattling on, but I, I just... I, you know what I thought was a good piece, and it was real short, but I hmm. thought it kind of put its finger on an interesting thing. It was a p- little piece Marco uh, Arment. The BS one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last week, where it was just, uh, you know, two or three items of BS from a couple of companies that are polarizing Apple, Google, Microsoft. Yeah. No, I think it was Apple, Google. Oh, not Facebook. Microsoft. That's right. Not and, Microsoft. And there was a yeah. lot of commentary from people who were like, isn't it interesting that Microsoft <laughs> doesn't even make the list for this stuff? I think anymore? Marco thought it was fish in a barrel. <laughs> right. Um, but I think the reason that it was good is that it's different people are annoyed by different things. And the things, the BS that he listed from Google, I thought were pretty accurate. And they, I actually find them, they, they kind of push my buttons. Like hypocrisy pushes my buttons. Like I do not like hypocrisy. And so they're repeated. Uh, and I, you know, I hammer it. I, I, I actually know that I hammer it too many points in it too many times on Darren Fireball, but this nonsense where they keep saying open, 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 open yeah. and this is open. And there are so many ways where this stuff is not open or not open in any way that is of any usefulness to actual people. Well, to consumers in particular. Right. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people learning make directory from the right. command line. 
Um, that really pushes my buttons. I'm sure that for other people, like the the no native apps other than through the app store and we approve them all, Apple rules is way more of a button pusher than it is for me. Like to me, I see it as, well, I see the trade-offs and I kind of, you know, as long as I still have my Mac where I can do whatever I want, I, I'm really not offended by this. I can totally see though, like the, I, what I would well, I shouldn't say the Mark Pilgrim perspective, but like Mark Pilgrim is one of the guys who I often try to put my try to imagine what I think his viewpoint is, and and it's always very helpful. And that's why one of the reasons I'm so sad that he's not blogging anymore because mm-hmm. he's a guy who often, often, almost always wrote things that were I don't know that I even disagreed with, but are, are always from a very different perspective than mine, and I thought was incredibly intelligent and well thought through, and by turning my gaze in the direction he's going was always insightful. Whether it changed my mind or not, it was always enlightening. And I think his perspective on it is the, you know, like with the app store is that it's the proverbial first step, you know, first they came for your neighbor's guns or whatever. Right. Um, You know, that first they, first they took control of native apps on iOS and that's just the first step down the road. And then eventually there's no native apps on any Apple product that aren't approved by Apple. And I see that. I totally see that. And I'm wary of it. Um, I'm just, to me though, it doesn't push my button and I'm not that alarmed by it because I don't think it's going to happen. And if it does, you know, then I'm sure there will be other alternatives. But at least, to, I forget the exact phrase that I think Syracuse used, but it's, so you are really punching the biggest guy. You are taking the best argument from somebody who's articulate about it, right? I mean, you certainly do your share of shooting fish in a barrel. And let's be honest, a few years ago, it was not clear. <laughs> there was a lot of fish being shot in Apple's barrel a, a long time ago, and you and I have lived through that. So I think, obviously, you do take a certain delight in, in the claim chowder stuff, and being able to show along the lines of the Daily Show, like, is anybody, did anybody realize that you can take two pieces of videotape and show somebody lying repeatedly? Like, right. you know, you can do that, right? Right. Uh, play Notre Dame. Play Notre Syracuse. Dame. That was the right. line. That's a great. Was that Syracuse that said that? Or was I that think you? So. Or uh, no, I think it was Syracuse. I um. But you know what? And it comes to you know, and, and I think that the the further explanation of that is. The weird nature. I'm not even a big college football fan, but the weird nature is that a lot of these big teams will load up their schedule with, you know, East Carolina State, you know, like in September and October, so you can roll into November with a six and zero record. Um, you know, whereas the better argument is, hey, load up your schedule with the best teams. Schedule Notre Dame. Play the good teams. Um, but as an aside, the reason that it's conflicted like that is that. Uh, college football in the U.S. that they don't have a play a true playoff system and you kind of have to be if you want to win the title you kind of have all to numbers be a, right the BCS yeah you kind of have to be undefeated or at most have one loss and so it the temptation to put a couple of weak teams on your schedule is uh, it's almost overwhelming whereas if they had a playoff system the best team maybe has three or four losses but could roll into the playoffs like by we've played nothing but the best all year maybe we're going to win whereas the stupid uh, no play. That's why I don't watch college football. They don't have playoffs. Well, this is a, a little bit of a side angle, but like I, we've talked about this before, at least offline. But the thing, the thing that I find a little bit frustrating sometimes, I, you know, as somebody who's been using a Mac uh, every day since 1987, I, I've been through a lot. 
with with the Apple family, uh, ups and downs. And I have not always been as tuned into it as I was, especially in say the early two thousands. But um, you know, when I was coming up, it really it was there was no question that it was Windows versus Apple on on any variety of levels. Now, I mean. You know, like a lot of people have said, or at least like I've said, I mean, like, what if Apple decided that Windows was always their quote unquote competition and their enemy? Well, they wouldn't have made some really great stuff because they would have been fighting the last war. But right. but in my case, there, the breakthrough for me happened two or three years ago. And I, you tell me if you think this is crazy or not, but like, just uh, this is a very high level thing. But I, I realized that, well, there's a thing that was an Alberto Echo said about how Macs are. Uh, Catholic and Windows is Protestant or something like that. DOS, yeah. I think he said was Protestant. I think it's. It, I think there's more truth to that than most people realize. And I would. And st- today, what I would do is I would. You could. You know, you could make an aesthetic argument very persuasively. You in particular, but I'm going to make an argument based on f- philosophy and values. And I think the philosophy and values of people on Windows, some flavor of Unix, and Apple are extremely different. And the values of somebody like Richard Stallman, which he really believes, and I, I respect, I think the guy's goofy, but I respect his values because he sure does. I mean, he, he wants that BIOS, baby. Like, he, he wants it all. And I, I get that, and I respect that in the same way that, like, you, um, like you said, I mean, what you implicitly said at the beginning of this show was that you don't want to have to run a podcast. You know, you said, like, on the, what, you, what you, you left it at, like, I'll sweat every pixel on Daring Fireball, but didn't you kind of implicitly say, but, I, you know, I'll let somebody else take care of the podcast for me. And all I know how to do anymore is turn on Skype. I will do enough make, make file, whatever, to, like, get a Python thing running. But you know what? I, I'm never going to live in Unix, partly because philosophically value-wise, I respect that in much the same way that I res- would respect a faith, even if it's not my faith. But I'm never. That's nothing. The value of somebody who believes in open source or free software or GNU or whatever is very different from the value of somebody who says, "I really don't like the way this text editor on iOS works versus that text editor because of this one way that it looks." And you know what? The whole like iTunes Store thing. I don't care. I just I just want this thing to work. Versus somebody who says, "I want backward compatibility with every Windows box in our entire enterprise." Those are totally different. Those might all be straw men, but I'm just saying. To me, that's how I see it. I see it when somebody starts saying ice ice cream sandwich versus iOS 5 or whatever, I think that's like arguing about transubstantiation. You've got one person with faith, belief, and values in one area, and you're implicitly trying to talk them out of whether Jesus is bread. And that, to me, feels like such a dead end because you you guys, you're never going to agree on this because your values are so different and your framework for understanding this thing you both care intensely about in different ways, it'll never match up. And, and I think that's what m- drives you, if I may say, I think that's what drives you crazy. It's like Paul Therott is never going to, is that how you say it, Paul Therott? I, th- I think so. Every time I'm ever on a podcast and we talk about, about Paul, it's, it, there's always a side disc- an immediate digression about how you pronounce his surname. Or, or you know, uh, I think it's pronounced Enderlay, uh, Rob Enderlay. <laughs> He's never just going to bust a gut and go, you know what? Apple's great. I mean, and maybe it's not, maybe because he's dug in, maybe because he's not. You know, like you say, your, your, your stake in the ground is that when Apple starts making crappy stuff again, you'll say so. I think and that's not your words, but right. I, I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that, but that to me, you know, if you are, and again, this goes back to that word partisan, if you like. Well, let's this put is it true. This, that is true. Well, I'll just say that though. That, that maybe you're a people- bishop. Maybe you are a bishop in this faith, is what I'm saying. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, you know, the only. 
like, you know, like you just said, like to me, the, the people who say, well, I'm clearly biased in favor of unfairly biased in favor of Apple because everything I, I read is. I, I want to be super clear before you, I did not say evangelical. <laughs> no, I'm not saying right. you're trying to talk somebody out of of uh, right. believing in Martin Luther's theses. I'm saying that you know so much about this thing and you have values in that area. That doesn't make you necessarily hate other people or other faiths, if you like. It's just that that's your focus. That is your area. Your area of completion is understanding all of the stuff in that particular faith and value system. I did a bit in the, the talk I gave a couple of months ago at that Singleton Symposium. Which I was not uh, invited to. That's fine. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, they, uh, in beautiful Montreal, what a great place. Um, you should go next year. Um, mm. But part of my talk was about that old engineering maxim, good, fast, or good, on time, cheap, pick two. And, you know, what a great little maxim that is. And you can see how it makes intuitive sense that, you know, if you take any two of those, the third has to suffer. There's no way you're going to have something well done that ships on time and have it be done cheaply. It's going to cost a lot of money to do that. Um, and I, I reiterated at the time that what I'm about to say next is absolutely not original. Maybe a million people have said that maxim. 999,000 have said what I'm about to say, which is that the truth is you really only get to pick one um, in practice. And in real world, there's way more factors in any project or creative endeavor than just those three. Um, but I, I think though it's easier though to think about if you think about it in that neat little good on time cheap. It it changed the way I did project management. It became the most immutable law when I was a project manager that if you cannot get people to understand the triangle, well, I used to call the project management triangle in your case, engineering. If you cannot get people to understand that you're never going to ship anything great, maybe not not ship anything. Yeah, I agree. And the triangle is works and that triangle is maybe, you know, some fundamental ones. But like, for example, the word good is so multifaceted that inside good is all sorts of different ways that a thing could be good. Um, and like what an Apple product, what people at Apple would think is good, like what Scott Forstall is going to look at and say is, okay, this is good enough. We're ready to ship is very different than what someone on the Android team, like Andy Rubin is going to look at and say, this is good. There are different priorities. Um, but I still think that at a fundamental level, it's true though, that you get to pick a lot fewer things to say, this is something that we will not budge on. But, it, but it, I'll just interject. Uh, Annie Rubin's idea of good might also be fundamentally different because if you're if your source if, if you're looking I don't even call it open source but whatever if your focus is, again with Windows is going to be on being able to run on this high end Dell as well as a set top box in Vietnam your idea of good is going to be completely philosophically different than for Scott Forstall. I'm just saying right. it's more than going like is this is this too much Chrome is this polished. Is this responsive enough? Is the screen laggy? If your number one thing is this needs to run on every box, your good is so different. Right. So I think, yeah, and I exactly like that. And I think that it's possible that everybody can value all of those things. Like it's easy to say that I would like something that is good on time and cheap and I value them all. Uh, wouldn't it be great in an ideal world if you had a project that that came out perfectly and it was on time and under budget? Um, but the truth is you've got to pick the, you've got to pick which one is more important to you. You have to, 
and you have to focus on that. And inevitably, in the real world, in practice, the others are going to suffer. The order in which you put them, even though you might say, I do value all of them, mm-hmm. the order in which you put them, to me, is probably, if you, if you could chart it, it would be like on a logarithmic scale, where... Oh, it's more than it's more than just thirty three, thirty three, thirty four, and thirty four right. is the top quote unquote priority. You're saying yeah. that you have to put that one point ten times higher than the second one. That's what I think in mm-hmm. in practice. And so for things like like clearly to me, Apple values um, typography far more than any of their competitors. And I mean typography, let's say in the modern sense where you're not talking about putting type on paper to lay out a magazine or a book, but screen typography, mm-hmm. which includes like not just the words being next to each other, but uh, UI typography, which would be like how close no, to like cancel. No, like in the Jan Sichold sense, like the whole design of, of the screen as a, as a gestalt. It's much right, more like than if, just like do you pick Cochin? Like right, what like, does the whole thing look like? Right, and if you're prompting someone with a question where there are only two possible answers, which is to say um, delete, you know, you do you really want to delete this draft email or stop, stop, stop the deletion, cancel and go back? I want to keep it open. (laughs) How close are those two buttons to each other, and what color are they? In a sense, that's sort of that's sort of a typography. Apple values the beauty of that sort of typography more than other any other company. And I don't see how anybody can dispute that. And I think that there might be people who prefer, honestly prefer, have looked at iOS, have maybe have even used it an, uh, an iPhone and have switched to um, a Nexus Galaxy and are happy and I think it's their, their life is better because of it. And they might value typography and beauty and user interface design and they're happy that Android 4 is better looking and better designed than any previous version of Android. But it's just not as high a priority as it is for me as an individual and I think for people at Apple who are the right people who are working at Apple. It just isn't as important to them. And there are other factors that are more important to them. And the differences, especially like that like 1, 2, and 3 mm-hmm. on that list of your priorities the the difference on that logarithmic scale it's just magnified do you think um as a leading question but i'm along with some of the other uh, hosts on this uh, network i i laugh i laughed at a couple weeks ago when eric schmidt uh made was it three f- uh announcements involving a freedman unit went there, went there, went there, he didn't eric freeman uh, excuse me eric schmidt announce at least three at least two. major. Well, there's the fifty. He's going to be in fifty percent. Google. It was Android will be in fifty percent of TVs that ship. Yeah. Uh, world class. Um, uh, oh yeah, a world class tablet. And wasn't there another one? Yeah, and the, the one the one I'm thinking of is that six months from now, mobile developers will develop for Android first. Setting aside um, all of the partisanship on whether you like iOS or Android. If your value, like mine and presumably yours, is is understanding the immutable nature of the Project Triangle, that's partly why we. I was joking about that, and a lot of people have also joked about it. There's something in my gut that's farcical about doing something that would take five companies operating synchronously at the top of their game. 
It, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to pull in people from five business units into the big meeting room and produce an iPhone. You're not, you know what I mean? This is, this is, this is the difference. And I, okay, here comes the partisanship. But that's to me what's so funny and maybe galling about that kind of an announcement is it acts like the project, the project management triangle. Let's even say money. Let's see you even say, you know what? Money's going to be the freebie. We're going to add two orders of magnitude to this budget. I don't think that is enough time to do all of that stuff in a way that's anything but cobbled together. And I think the project, it hangs over like something in the beginning of Superman. It's like, you know, the big mirror. Like, it's just spinning, waiting to pick up the general because that triangle is not going to go away. You know, and it's a part of me that also wonders if anybody in those departments had any idea he was going to say that. I don't think so. I get the feeling that Eric Schmidt is a bit of a loose cannon and, and, and freed from the role of CEO and now is just chairman that it's, he's even looser. So that's a publicly tra- that's a publicly traded company. That's a very interesting forward looking statement for a public company to make. I would think so. I would, and I would think that like an Andy Rubin probably wanted to strangle him with the, in particular, the uh, world class cab tablet um, within the <laughs> next six months. Now, I, I, clearly, that suggests that Google is working on a an updated and a major new tablet. Um, which and tablet that, is still completely under the aegis of the product? If if you want to have that that giant drive in there, and if you want to, I guess I'm not going to try and run Flash at this point. But you know, again, it goes straight back to the battery. It goes back to the weight. It goes to the form factor. It goes to the screen. How how laggy is your screen allowed to be? You can do that in six months. Yeah, and I think that especially with the stuff on the market, and it's always different. I think when you're talking about something where you're your company isn't yet on the market versus one where they are. So, for example, when when Steve Jobs unveiled the original iPhone six months before it went on sale, well, that didn't hurt Apple's existing iPhone sales because they didn't have one. You know, they didn't they weren't selling a phone yet. Mm-hmm. So, if it made people wait six months to buy a phone, well, that was actually in Apple's favor. This is this whereas, the Osborne effect you were speaking, yeah, speaking of? Yeah. yeah. So, where you know, whereas sort of admitting tacitly admitting that existing Android tablets are not world-class, which is the implication if you're saying that we're going to have a world-class one in six months, it's, you know, it's more or less admitting that we don't have one now. Uh, isn't really the sort of thing that the people who already are trying to sell the today's Android tablets are looking to hear. It's a very strange thing. We should wrap in a sec, but I want to ask you, um, I really like what you said about, I'd never thought of it quite the way you put it, but if you're looking, let's review, the the, the triangle is, it's like uh, it's like cheap, good, and fast would be one way to put it. In, in project management, we would say there's three sides, in, at least here's the project management angle. You've got a triangle. Imagine a notional triangle that has three corners, because that's what a triangle has. Uh, one of them is quality. Uh, quality or durability or features or however you want to put that. Well, let's right? just admit. Let's just admit though that a discussion of what makes for a quality product is in itself an, an infinitely deep argument. Yes, absolutely. We could stipulate but you, but that, the, but, but that you can you can encapsulate it and zoom out and just say quality. Well, there's there's a very reductive but true way to put this, which is if somebody goes to the whiteboard and puts eighty five bullets of features and benefits and says go make this. This is where it gets complicated because that you don't have to even call it quality. You could just call it features. Like think about it as, as code. Think about features for what you need to ship. Well, well, let me come back to this. So just to clarify though, that's I've heard it put different ways. Some people say quality. You know, some people say like you know tolerances. There's all kinds of different ways to look at this. Like if it's a plane, guys, we really need to have this thing not fall out of the sky. 
right? That's quality. Right. In that right. Sense. You cannot budge on that. Right. And the other, another corner is money, resources, uh, just anything that you have to spend on this with the implication being you have to take it away from other stuff. Right. So unless you have unlimited resources, you're going to have to make decisions about how many people to put on this at the beginning or God forbid at the end. Um, and the third one is time. T- time is not going to move. It's going to take a certain amount of time to make whatever. If you want one bullet, that's going to take a certain amount of time. If you want 50 bullets of features and benefits, that's going to take a certain amount of time. Now, the way I would phrase this with clients and hopefully not too much of a dick way was uh, the way it was taught to me. Uh, you get to hold two corners and I get to hold one. So if you tell me you want extremely high quality or features very, very quickly, then I get to decide how much that's going to cost. Right. You, you get a vote, but like, and you can nix it, but nixing that means that it does, you don't get a fourth corner or you don't get to right. cut off a corner. It's, it's an engineering problem. It, the, 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 the plane is going to have to carry heavy gas you, if you want it to go over the ocean. You don't get to pull on those two points and not have the other point move along with them in a corresponding it's, it's fashion. It's always 180 degrees. There will right. never be less than 180, less or more than 180 degrees. And just as a, a quick swipe shot over the bow, that's what makes a bad manager. A bad manager is somebody who has not accepted that much more than their staff or the people above them. If you, if you don't accept that, you're, gonna, you're not going to be a good manager. You're not going to staff up or down enough. You're not going to have budgets. You're going to slip on your dates. And anyway, if everybody doesn't understand that and agree we used to call it a project charter. Like if everybody doesn't agree on what the rules are, what do you, you know? And so what do you do? You go into the uh, mythical man month thing. You say, oh gosh, these were more features than we needed. Now the solution is to throw people at it. And how well does that go, right? So that anyway, that's the funny part about it. Now I want, I, I don't know if I heard this from you via you. I want to say it was Chartboy that said this, but, but somebody said in an acquisition, uh, you can buy oh, – I should have looked this up. But in an acquisition, when you acquire a company, you're paying for – was it resource resources, market share, or talent? Wait, is that it? Anyway, whenever you buy a company, you're basically getting you, – you, you buy – in the amount that you pay for something, it covers the talent, uh, the market share, or the technology, right, or the patents or whatever, right? You have to pay for all of those, but in reality, you only really get to use – one of them. And I think it might have been a Simcoe chart boy that said that, but I, I don't remember. But I, I, that, that was like, that sounded so brilliant to me. Like when you go out, if you buy Dropbox, are you buying Dropbox for the service? Are you buying Dropbox for the talent? You, know, you follow? Yeah, I do follow. I don't know if you, I don't know if I learned about that from you, but that really, that's, no, it wasn't me. It that, definitely wasn't. that struck me as being super smart. That, and, and again, all you have to do, can I just say two words, Time Warner? Do you remember when that they were going to rename the company AOL? <laughs> and do you remember six or eight months after the acquisition, the sum total of what they had produced was an eighth of an inch bar at the top of every web page that Time Warner was associated with? Right. That was that was that was basically it. And then you had it's the classic, one of the classic culture clashes. It's got to be up there with what like Sun and uh, Oracle in terms of like just colliding cultures. I to me, if you don't get that you only get to pick one of those, again, you may have to pay for all three, right? Because right. that's, that's their value in the market. Because somebody else, the point, I guess the implicit point being another company, let's say you're buying them, um, let's say you're doing a straight up talent acquisition, which seems like most acquisitions are eventually, especially with Google. I mean, not that Apple's never going to buy something to just use their version of it. Adobe might do that. Right. But, but what Adobe would pay for Macromedia 
is really different from what Apple would have paid for Macromedia. They sure would have probably offered a lot less. They might have just wanted that talent, not to just, you know what I mean, white labor, like repackage uh, confusion. Right. Do you follow? Yeah. It seems to me that, 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 that if you were to adopt, in the same way that you're saying, the orders of magnitude picking of the triangle point, I think that really changes the way you think about company priorities too. And it shows you where the values and, and faith philosophy of that company is based on what they end up doing with that acquisition. Because if they try to do a little of all three, I think it's wasted money. Yeah, I think it's very clear. I think that's a great way to, to put it. And I think, for example, if you look back at the messiest by far acquisition Apple ever did, which was Next, that it actually, I think most people in hindsight would agree that it was effectively a talent acquisition. Um, and not just Steve Jobs, but the, you know the whole crew. I mean, so many of the people, Abby Tavanian ran all of the software for close to 10 years. Um, and a whole bunch of really smart engineers came with them. I mean, there's people inside Apple working on the, um, you know, Coco and Coco Touch who've been there since like 1989 at Next working on those same frameworks. Um, it was clearly also a technology acquisition where the core of the OS is the Next OS. But I think that after it shook out, after the acquisition shook out, it was the talent first, the technology second. And and I think that everybody knew it, it, one thing that was not confusing about that acquisition is that they were not buying any market share. It actually simplified things. It made people raise their eyebrows at the four hundred million dollar price that they were spending all that money on a company that effectively had no market share. Um, hmm. But I think in hindsight, it's pretty clear that they had their priorities straight. That. And I think Jobs always knew that. I think Jobs and the, and the people who he appointed to work with him as like his top executives, the ones he trusted, knew that the most important thing they had was was the talent. And if they needed to make something that wasn't even going to use the next technology, they wouldn't have hesitated to do it. I mean, for example, the iPod didn't use the original. You know, the click wheel jobby mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the next technology. I was like more creative, right? Right. Creative. Uh, I had a creative although, jukebox. Although in a sense, though, I've always thought this too, and it's sort of an aside, I guess, is that it did, as a user interface, use the column view metaphor, which Next pioneered. I don't recall anybody using that column view for a hierarchy. Um, you mean like before, com- Command 3? the Like if you're in a Finder window, Command 3, the, the columns? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that's, think about it. The column view in the Finder is the the original iPod interface. It's true. I thought they got that off from Creative. Didn't they acquire Creative? No. No. Oh, they just stole it. No, creative didn't really have it. Creatives, but it wasn't as neatly hierarchical as the iPod. So you go clunky. back and look at a. Re- wasn't creative the Rio company or no? Uh, that was Diamond. Oh, wait, Diamond. Yeah. I remember. My God, I, remember, I had a two gig creative jukebox that weighed like sixty pounds. There was so there was a crazy OS company like the Pixo OS or something like that. Pixo. Uh, the old iPods have it in there about credits. So you let me let me up. ask you this: What year was that acquisition? It was like over Christmas 1996, but it might not have been legal until 1997. Okay. But it was like right around now in 1997. Let's say the news comes out or gets leaked. This is all hypothetical. Let's say the news comes out or gets leaked. This is in the middle of the dot-com boom. And let's say you work for uh, Fast Company, Red Herring. What was the uh, 
what was the Battelle one? But whatever, you work for one of those fast-paced diggity 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 like dot commy things. And let's say your beat at that magazine is talking about specifically about the horse race for market share, right? Let's let's right. say that that is your coverage. Is it biased for that person to say this may not be a good acquisition because they don't have the market share? Would that, is no, that biased? No, I, I, no, I don't think it was biased. You know. Exactly. And so for somebody else who covered operating systems at that same publication or elsewhere, maybe somebody at Unix Times or whatever, uh, they have a completely different viewport into that because they care more about one corner of the triangle. Does that make them biased? And those two guys, they could argue forever. Let's say the argument that, that was on the table is, was this a good ap- acquisition for Apple? Well, the one guy's right. It, it, was a, it was a terrible acquisition because they don't have market share. The other guy's also right because, especially in retrospect, because it was a great acquisition because it brought them the thing that, that reinvented the company. And I think somebody could watch that and go, both of these guys are, are wrong and biased, you know, depending on what side you want to pick. But that's the kind of example I'm talking about is it really depends, it, like, as you say, I guess, on which corner of the triangle you have. Maybe putting it as faith was, was not the best way for me to put that, but – you know, when you take something in a big enough context, especially put it in a historical context, that's that's when it becomes clear what the real what the real play was. But I don't think that makes that market guy wrong. Right. I would have been wrong if I, I wrote just the other day when I was I think of what I'm saying it was 15 years ago to the day or the day after that if I had been writing during Fireball at the time, I think in hindsight I I would have probably called it a bad idea. I paid 25 bucks for that beta. Worst money I ever spent. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know. And, and then, of course, because I was still on OS 9 mostly, I was like, you know what? This is crazy. I'm going back to OS 9. Library. You know why? And I'll tell you why I would have been wrong. And it's exactly what you just said was that I think I would have placed – I would have been looking at the wrong – I wouldn't have been looking at market share. I would have been looking, though, at the next OS as it stood, which was interesting and always kind of geekily appealing to me. But it clearly wasn't – it wasn't going to help Apple as it was. What I didn't understand – was that the most important thing that Apple needed was an infusion of smart, talented executives at the top. Well, my, mine, was, mine was much simpler than that. Mine was like, I can't have my cool icon factory, like Kraftwerk icons. What are these, what are these giant pictures? Why is this so slow? Like, of course, no, we're, file, is FileBuddy even going to work on this? Like, the entire framework for why I loved a Mac seemed completely upside down, and it seemed right. like the absolute craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Right, same thing as me. You were looking at the product as it stood at the time. Which is why I decided to roll back and deleted that library folder, because I don't need books on here, you know? I'll just, <laughs> here, OS ten. I'm, I'm sorry, on 9, on 9, you're forever deleting stuff. You want to get rid of extensions, you delete them, right? right. TCP, you know, IP prep, you know, you got to just delete that stuff all the time. Just a library, I don't need that. Well, the, big th- the other big difference, too, is if you were totally infused with the Mac mindset, was that there was one magic folder, and it was said system folder. Yep. And if you were in there, all right, be a little careful. But other than that, Anything other than that any- has a picture of a Mac on it, don't delete. Right. Other, other, than that, than, other than that, you're good to go. <laughs> right, and you can play around and you know, put versions of uh, extensions from old versions of the system in there and replace the new version and you know, bring back compatibility with your zip drive or something like that. But then you get this next system where there was only one folder where you could play with, and it was three levels deep. It was like users, your name, and now you can sort of start moving stuff around willy-nilly. Uh, but if you've moved any of the other folders around, you were 
<laughs> library wasn't looking, a, turned out library wasn't colors. about books wasn't about books at all I had to reformat and start completely over uh, I should let are we you supposed go. to talk about James Bond now yep let's go in no. let's go ahead and start hour two I have to pee so bad I can't even stand it oh man I have so much stuff on cards here I'm not going to Clay Shirky reporting alright we'll come back to this um, thanks for doing this John hey this was fun yeah I hope you'll do it again yeah thanks buddy <laughs>